And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature, history, art, to philosophy and science as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, it's great to be with you. I'm Dr. Dave Devil, Professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm joined by my colleague Liz Kelly, award-winning writer and, most importantly, managing editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture published by the University of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Our guest today is a very special guest, Associate Professor of Spanish at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina, It's Professor Adam Glover, who is an expert in Latin American poetry and particularly the relationship between poetry and theology. We'll be talking today about his article, Corpus Mysticum, Transubstantiation and the Poetics of Ecstasy, as well as anything else he wants to talk about. Welcome, Adam. Oh, thank you very much. It's, very, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very happy. Well, Adam, we've got, we've got a number of things to ask you, but first, could you tell us a little bit about your journey? I mean, you're a professor of Spanish, but your work it, it has a very strong uh, knowledge of theology and philosophy behind it, which is what gives it so much interest to us. Yeah, um, so I've sort of been interested in, in philosophy and theology and literature in sort of combination really since I can remember being interested in anything at all, intellectually at least. It was the sort of thing I sort of read and thought about when I was in high school. And then when I went to college, I, I, I knew that I wanted to major in philosophy, I wanted to major in Spanish, and I wanted to study you know, other literatures as possible. When I graduated from college, I put in applications. I put in applications for graduate school in Hispanic literature. I put in applications in I put an application in comparative literature, I put an application in theology. So these, this sort of um, interplay between these disciplines has been something that's interested me for a long time. And I'm, I was really happy to find an outlet where I was able to sort of explore, bring them into conversation with one another in a way that wasn't sort of restricted disciplinarily, like so much, uh, so much of academia is. So uh, you got into Latin American poetry, and you've you've mm-hmm. started to to do you've done several pieces for us, and we we always mm-hmm. say, oh, good, this is by Adam. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and uh, it, what's delightful is precisely that combination of the the philosophy and the theology along with the with the literature. Um, mm-hmm. What you know, what what kind of things uh, do your colleagues think of of your work? Is there is there an interest in it? So this has actually been this is actually one of the reasons that I was so happy to find Logos as a as a possible outlet because I've, it's not been a, a problem I don't suppose but academics um, talk a lot about the importance of interdisciplinary collaboration the importance of sort of talking to each other across across disciplines but the university as a structure is still very much a disciplinary institution yes. and you get sort of hired into a mm-hmm. Spanish department or a theology department and. These sort of disciplinary structures dictate the sorts of classes you teach, the, the people that you're in meetings with, the students that you're likely to meet. Um, and so it's often challenging for someone who's interested in working across disciplines, and especially across maybe even three disciplines, philosophy, mm-hmm. theology, and Spanish. It's often difficult to 
find an appropriate outlet for that kind of work. Well, let's jump to the uh, the question of your article, Corpus Mysticum, yep. Transubstantiation and the Poetics of Ecstasy. Um, why don't you say a little bit about the figure? His name, he was a Chilean poet, Jose Miguel Ibanez Lanwa. Um, yeah. t- tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, so Jose Miguel Ibanez uh, or Langlois, um, there's a tendency in Latin American countries and Spanish-speaking countries to sort of Hispanicize French names, sort of like there is in, mm-hmm. in, um, in English-speaking countries to Anglicize French names. So he is a, he's a poet, a priest, a philosopher, a theologian, a social scientist, an historian, a person with immense humanist training, immense culture. He's from Chile, as you mentioned, born in 1936. He was ordained to the priesthood in 1960 in the prelature of Opus Dei. At that point, he was um, um, studying at various universities in in Europe, at the University of Navarra in Spain, where he studied journalism, and then he went to the Pontifical Lateran University in Rome to get a doctorate in theology, and then one doctorate just wasn't quite enough for him, and so he went to the University of Madrid and got a second doctorate in <laughs> philosophy and literature. And the, the, the sort of relationship between theology and literature has been at the heart of his work since the 1960s. He's written books about... Catholic social teaching. He's written books about liberation theology. He's written books about Marxism. He's written a whole series of collections of poetry about various topics. He's written works of theology. He's written works of philosophy. He's written works of literary criticism. In fact, in Chile, he's probably best known not as a theologian or even as a poet, but as a literary critic. Hmm. For a quarter century, he wrote a, a weekly column in a major newspaper in Santiago, a column reviewing newly published books in Chile. He, he really came to to exercise an immense amount of influence in Chilean letters, and a good, mm. a good recommendation, a good review from employees could sort of set a writer for life, and a bad review could really, you know, put, put an end to a career. So he, I guess what the kids would call these days an influencer, mm. was really influential in shaping Chilean literary and cultural and artistic tastes for for a quarter century. Mm-hmm. One of the winning points of an article that we publish in Logos is af- after you finish reading that article, you really want to pick up the poet yep. <laughs> and read them. And uh, your article, of course, does exactly that. You, you're dying to read uh, uh, him after having read your article. Um, I think uh, one of the great things that Logos is able to do is to introduce, in an interdisciplinary way, new voices or voices that our readership hasn't necessarily heard, and he's certainly one of them. Uh, Would you speak a little bit about the cultural context that we should keep in mind when reading him, especially in in the Catholic arena? You know, we have a great deal of context for sort of the Catholic Shakespeare or the Catholic Dante or, you know, other poets, but probably not so much for him. So is there something we should keep in mind when we're reading him? Yeah, that's a, that's a really excellent question. Can I say, first of all, that um, that was probably the best compliment I've ever been paid. I mean, that really is my goal <laughs> when I write about a new author, to make people want to actually pick up, to put my, my piece down right, and pick up the actual, the actual writer. So I really appreciate that. It's very, very kind. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there might be two or three different overlapping contexts that are important to keep in mind for for appreciating what Langlois is up to. The first is just the 
the sort of history of Catholicism in the 20th century. So Langlois, as I said earlier, born in 1936. He's in Europe in the early and mid-1960s, um, sort of you know, right around the time of the Second Vatican Council. He's engaged with the questions of the, Vatican, of the Second Vatican Council. It was also a really important time in Latin American theology. So in 1971, Gustavo Gutierrez will publish his Theology of Liberation. Um, it's an important moment for that movement. It's an important moment for Langlois as well, because he will, for the next 30 or 40 years, sort of define himself really in, in uh, theologically, at least, in opposition to that dominant theological movement in Latin America. He'll write a series of, of books about Marxism, a series of books about liberation theology that are sharply critical, that are critical of using Marxism as an analytical tool, that are very skeptical about the um, compatibility of Marxism and Christian theology. So that's important to keep in mind. Mm. Um, he has a lot of detractors in Latin American theology, especially on the sort of Catholic left, the liberation um, theologians. So that's important to keep in mind as, as we're thinking about his place, I think, in, in at least Catholic history in the 20th century. That also plays into some degree to his place in Chilean society and politics in the 20th century as well. So uh, up until about the early 1970s, Chile had a, had a reputation in Latin America as a relatively stable, open, and free liberal democracy. That all began to fall apart in the early 1970s. I don't know um, if we're familiar at all with the history of Chile, but this is just a little sort of a brief precis of what's going on in the early 70s. So Salvador Allende is elected to the presidency of Chile in 1970. And Allende is significant for a number of reasons, but for our purposes, because he was the first self-described Marxist to be elected the president of a liberal democracy. Others had come to power, like Castro, but through a military coup. In 1973, Allende is removed from power through a military coup led by Augusto Pinochet. Um, and then that sort of eventuated in a, a nearly 20-year military dictatorship in Chile. This is a period in Chilean history, history in which Langlois is very active, but partly because of his sort of traditionalist and conservative ideological inclinations. He was widely, by his detractors, thought to be sympathetic to Pinochet. Um, and people sort of have criticized him over, over the years for, for, for this reason. I tend to think that the criticisms are probably unfair to Lundgren's, that there may have been some ideological overlap, but, mm. but the idea that he was sympathetic to Pinochet's authoritarian tendency strikes me as false and possibly, possibly slanderous. Mm. But I, I say that only in order to orient the reader and the, the listener to how it is that Lundgren's, depending on your own political vantage point, will be construed in the context of... No, that's exactly the, exactly the question I was asking, because it is yeah. such a complex history, Absolutely. and because some of these trends are uh, kind of being reinvented in our own country right now, I think yeah. it's very, it makes it even much, uh, much more rich for us to uh, understand exactly what was going on in Chile at that time. What do you think in the book in which you focus in this article that you wrote for us uh, is the Libro de la Passion, the Book of mm -hmm. the Passion? Yeah. And the material that you cover in there is very much theological. Mm -hmm. Were those poems received by people with a sort of skepticism that, well, this is just sort of politics, or was it received as really what it is, a sort of reflection 
a poetic reflection upon the meaning of a things. A piece of art. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I think that's that's an excellent question. Um, I, I'm, I'm not, um, I don't know a whole lot about the sort of reception history of the Book of the Passion, mm-hmm. but my, my sense is that, well, so two things. First of all, my sense is that anyone who would have been inclined to purchase and read Book of the Passion would have been someone already inclined to, to be sympathetic mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the second, the second point I would make along those same lines is that it is very, very clearly and importantly a theological work, a, a poetic reflection on on theology and history. But it is, it's it's been received in Chile at least, almost as a um, as a devotional book. And so, so I have um, I have I have friends in Chile who will sort of read the book during Advent every year <laughs> yeah. as part of a, a spiritual exercise. Now, it's not entirely clear to me, because Langlois does not often talk about his own sort of literary production. It's not clear to me that that's how he intended it, mm-hmm. but it seems at least clear that it can be read in those terms and has been read in those terms. So it's a theological book. I think it's designed. it's designed to be to be used for devotional purposes, as a kind of aid to prayer, hmm. an aid to meditation, to contemplation. Let me let me read a little bit from uh, from yep. the book. Uh, you did you did the translations for for uh, this article, did you not? That is correct. Unfortunately, uh, the book of the Passion has not been issued in English translation. Well, well, get get to work, would you? <laughs> I know, I know. You, you don't know how many times I've thought about just sending Langlois an email and saying, I would really like to translate this book. Will you please give me the right to translate? <laughs> well, here's Adam Glover's translation uh, from the Book of the Passion from a section in the very middle of the poem as the narrative is approaching the decisive moment of consecration. Take and eat, this is my body. This is my blood of the eternal covenant that will be poured out on the cross. Renew this sacrifice in my memory, he says, and taking himself in his own hand, he distributes his communion. And after the body victim is consumed, it disappears into his twelve loves. And the voice of the high and eternal priest, after the sacrifice, O God, disappears into the love of God for a few minutes. It is the deep prayer that follows communion. Twelve inner Christs gaze with astonishment upon outward Christ. Say a little bit about uh, some of the theological insights that are in, in that section. Yeah, so this is, um, this is a magnificent, magnificent sequence in the poem. It is sort of indicative of Langlois' style in general. One, one thing that you can't difficult to appreciate as it's read aloud is just the way that the, the words are distributed on the page. Mm-hmm. So there is, um, there's like no punctuation mm-hmm. in all of that passage, right? So they're clearly sort of syntactically distinct sentences and clauses and so on, but everything comes at the reader like a torrent, and mm-hmm. which, which means that you have to be attentive to the language in a way that you don't otherwise if you're being guided by punctuation. You know, mm-hmm. So the words come at you like a torrent, and you have to pay attention so that you are sort of separating them correctly. That's on the one hand, just in terms of the sort of stylistics. Uh, uh, the, the main theological insight, as far as I can tell, in this poem has to do with this sense at the end that as a result 
of Christ, as the poet says, taking himself in his own hand, which is an arresting image already. Mm-hmm. Then he distributes his communion to the disciples, and then disappears into his twelve loves, as if Christ is sort of, you get this it's a very vivid image, as if Christ himself is sort of disappearing, being sort of uh, subsumed into the bodies of the, of the disciples. And as a result of this process, where Christ takes himself in his own hand and distributes himself to the, to the disciples, the last line of what was just quoted, the poet says, Twelve inner Christs gaze with astonishment upon outward Christ. Yeah. That seems to me the, the, the most important theological insight, that what happens for Langlois as a result of communion is not simply spiritual nourishment, but transformation into, into Christ. Mm. That the disciples, as a result of having consumed Christ's bodies, are not only spiritually renewed, they're only fortified and strengthened, but they have become, literally, the poet says, <laughs> twelve inner Christs. They have themselves become sort of little Christs who are now gazing upon, upon Christ himself. That seems to me an important theological insight. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies movement in higher education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits, Catholic intellectual exploration, or career preparation. Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu backslash Catholic Studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. The, uh, th- this is so fascinating because it, it really is about this, this utter centrality of Christ's action. One of the things that you point out in the article is that uh, Langlois not only says that Christ's passion is the only thing that has occurred in the history of humanity, but it's the only thing that has occurred in the history of the creation itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that seems to indicate, you know, they're becoming Christ. We, when we partake in the Eucharist, when... (laughs) in a proper manner, become Christ, and we get mm-hmm. sort of sucked into really the only thing in history. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, um, that's one of my favorite lines in the poem. It's an arresting line, which, of course, I think intended to be a paradoxical line. Mm-hmm. At, at face value, it looks to be straightforwardly false, right? Lots of things <laughs> right. that, that are not, in fact, identical with the passion. So, I mean, on the one hand, we might be dealing here with just a case of poetic hyperbole. It's sort of a fancy way of saying that the passion is really, 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 really important. Like a freshly smitten lover might say to his beloved, you are everything to me. You're everything I'll ever need. You're momentarily forgetting that I'll have to eat and bathe at some point <laughs> in, the, in the future, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think that might be part of the story. Um, that, would be, that would be interesting, but probably not interesting enough. Another possibility, I think, if you, t- if you continue reading in that context where Langlois says that the, the passion is the only thing that's happened in the history of the creation, he'll go on to say things like, um, what, is, what is the formation of the solar system except the initial sketch of the scene of the passion? Or mm. what is the creation of Earth's dense vegetation with its trees and bushes 
except the beginning of the the construction of Christ's cross. Mm. Those images, it seems to me, suggest that it's not so much that the passion is the only thing that's happened, but rather that everything else that has happened acquires whatever significance and meaning, importance it has in virtue of its relationship to the passion. Mm. And the, the, the central metaphor there is contained in that first line I, I quoted, what is the formation of the solar system except the initial sketch of the scene of the passion. And scene, escenario in Spanish, is an explicitly theatrical term. So mm. the idea seems to be that cosmic history is a kind of enormous stage play, and Christ is the central character, and passion is the central event, and the rest of us play, if not exactly bit parts, then supporting roles. And our roles only make sense in terms of their relationship or orientation to that, to that central defining event. So that if you removed the passion from cosmic history, you would just be left with a massive unintelligibility, much like if you tried to stage a production of Hamlet with all of Hamlet's lines exiled, which doesn't make sense anymore. Right? Mm-hmm. That seems to be something like, like what you're getting at. There might be another connection as well. Uh, later on in that same in that same passion, he he writes, um, "What is what is the third world war except an indication that Christ is in agony until the end of the world?" Mm. And he says, "Every day is Good Friday, and every night as well. Tell me, is there a night? Tell me, is there a night that doesn't contain the crucified within it? Mm. Tell me." Is there not a night in which his divine blood flows through the sewers? The world is a mass that looks like the world. Mm. And that last line is, is absolutely arresting. The world is a mass that looks like the world. But the thought there seems to be that even if Christ's passion is a unique event, if it's unrepeatable historically, and even if through that unique and unrepeatable event, death and suffering and sin have been conquered once and for all, the effects of that conquest of death and suffering and sin have not been fully realized as evidenced by the fact that, you know, we continue to sin and suffer and die. And so as a result, you might think that in every instance of sin, every instance of suffering, cruelty, indifference, those redemptive effects have to be sort of reapplied. Christ has to be, as it were, metaphorically re-crucified, as Hebrews 6, 6 says. So that every day is Good Friday, because every day we're doing something to mess up the redemption that Christ has already wrought and requiring the sort of metaphorical re-crucifixion. In that sense, you might think that the history of the cosmos doesn't have as one of its events the passion, but rather that the history of the cosmos is itself just one long act of redemption, or at least that's one way of sort of taking this strange and arresting and hyperbolic claim that that Langlois makes. I find this really interesting because when you think about transubstantiation, I'm like jettisoned back to graduate school where you're talking <laughs> about philosophy of, you know, essence and accidents and, and all of these sorts of things. You know, you sort of first go to philosophy and then to theology. You don't immediately think poetry. <laughs> poetry will be the thing that will help me to understand this extraordinary concept of transubstantiation. And yet, uh, you know, after spending so much time with this article, um, you know, honestly, I just had a deeper yearning for the Eucharist, and there exactly. was kind of a, a a pain almost in it, <laughs> of just yeah. of, um, uh, because he is so 
he is so uh, the, the the book is about the passion it's not about the resurrection yes. it's about the passion and and um could you speak a little bit about you know what it is that poetry does that theology cannot or maybe what poetry after we've had our philosophy and theology formation you know maybe what uh, poetry adds it's a question that i've really struggled with mm. a lot because I came to I came to literature and poetry in particular through theology mm-hmm. philosophy. So my primary training, chronologically at least, primary primary training was in philosophy and theology. And so I've sort of had this this tendency early on to treat literature, especially literature that raised interesting theological and philosophical questions, as a kind of mine where you could you know go in and dig around and find an interesting theological question or philosophical question and then extract that philosophical question and examine it in, in the abstract. Um, luckily, I had a, a very a very good dissertation advisor when I was in graduate school who really broke me of that habit. He would always say, hmm. you have to let the poem speak for itself. Hmm. You, have to let the, you have to let the poem tell you what it wants to tell you. Don't sort of come to it with an agenda. Don't come to it imposing philosophical categories. That That's is a to do. great advice. You had a great, that was great <laughs> That's advice. That's exactly right. So I mean, one of the things that, that poetry, I think that poetry can do, poetry doesn't do well when it makes arguments, doesn't seem to me. It doesn't mm-hmm. do well when it makes discursive arguments. Poetry is at its best when it works in imagery. And I think that that's what poetry in general and specifically the poetry of Langlois can bring to our understanding of transubstantiation in this case in particular. So, for instance, in uh, one of the poems that I look at in some detail in the article, Langlois describes the event of transubstantiation, but he describes it from the perspective of the bread. Mm. Now, I've thought about transubstantiation mm. a lot in sure. my sort of professional and spiritual life, but I've never sort of asked, well, what would it be like to experience transubstantiation from the perspective of the transubstantiated bread? And um, Langlois invites us to do that, to, to take a different perspective. And the way that he describes it is, is absolutely fascinating. He describes it drawing on the language of mysticism. So he says, for instance, that in the event of transubstantiation, the bread is, as he, he puts it sweetly, torn away from itself, right? mm-hmm. sort of wrapped out of itself. And as it's undergoing this experience of being united to the body of Christ, it undergoes a kind of mystical ecstasy, right? Um, I don't know if that's uh, the sort of thing that a Catholic theologian would want to say as a matter of dogma, a matter of doctrine. Sure. But it provides an opportunity to think about the Eucharist in a way that you're, you're unlikely to get if you're reading uh, an essay or a book or an article on the it, Eucharist. Just even the idea of thinking of it from that perspective uh, invites you into a completely different relationship <laughs> with, I think you know, the Eucharist. Right. And, I, I, and because theology and philosophy have to do different things um, and, and are about different methods, uh, yeah. you know, I, that's one of the reasons I just I love his poetry, is it just yeah. invites a fresh encounter with right. something that, you know, I think I already understand as much as anybody can understand the mystery of the transubstantiation, but yeah. there's a way that uh, his poetry seems to 
um, invite us to embody the experience in a in a fuller way. And if I could, if I could just briefly follow up on what you what you just said, the idea that poetry can allow you to not only have sort of a different perspective on this question you've thought about and, uh, and reflected on, on regularly, um, but also that it can allow us to sort of embody that reality differently. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the other things, and this this didn't actually figure in the article, but it's maybe worth bringing up here. One of Langlois' convictions, as far as I can tell, about the Eucharist is that it, it's it's wrong to think of it as, as merely a sacrament, as something that's limited to the church, the altar, something that happens on a Sunday morning mass. Right? That it's a uh, it has implications for how we think of all of reality. Mm-hmm. So there's this bit at the end of the of the, the poem where the, the crucifixion of Christ has been has been narrated, and then there's a sort of a coda at the end of the poem in which Langlois describes, to the extent that you can, the, the resurrection. And he doesn't describe it doesn't describe it straightforwardly. He describes it in terms of its effects on the rest of creation. And so he imagines this dialogue between various sort of bits of material or created reality. And so toward the end of this, this sequence, he says, the rivers say, right, the rivers are talking to each other, the rivers say, oh, we are flowing almost Eucharistically. Mm. And then the flowers whisper back to them, we are opening like sacraments. And then the cosmos says to itself, I don't know how to say it exactly, but I have the impression that I've been turned into a tabernacle. Mm. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. So mm. the idea is that the Eucharist is not, not simply a sacrament, as if anything was simply a sacrament, it's not, not the sort of thing that can be limited to a particular ecclesiastical ritual, right? Yeah. It's the sort of thing that implicates all of reality, not only human reality, but the material world, that everything is at least potentially susceptible of the indwelling of, divine, of the divine presence that characterizes and- in a unique way the transubstantiation of the bread and wine. You know, and that captures something much greater (laughs) than sometimes the language of our theology and philosophy allows. Uh, There's something uh, that we can step into that's um, much bigger um, through through his, his poetry. I mean, I think it was Newman was talking about how, you know, we're always going to be limited by language and the words that we have and there's something about poetry that can kind of step outside of that limitation and uh and invite um invite something deeper maybe i don't know yeah i mean i think in that sense it's not surprising at all that this poem has been often read um as a devotional aid right as as an aid to prayer an aid to contemplation yeah well and i think sometimes People use the word devotional because I do a lot of devotional writing, and and I should offer that. So um, I, I do have that in my my experience. But a lot of people use the word devotional as kind of like, oh, that's just devotional. <laughs> you know, oh, that's just devotional writing. And you know what? There's plenty of Catholic schlock out there, so I I can understand why people say that. And I hope that my my devotional writing isn't a, a negative part of all of that. But I do think that there's an element of that devotional piece that humanizes and at the same time sanctifies 
in a way that sometimes theology and philosophy on its own cannot. Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. I'm reminded of a quotation, and I want to attribute this to John Luke Marion, the French theologian, but I may be incorrect. He says, you know, the whole point of theology is to help you pray better. Yeah. That, mm-hmm, that if mm-hmm. theology is not helping you pray better, then theology is not doing its job. You know, so the idea that devotional writing is merely devotional writing seems to me to get it exactly backwards. Yeah, that's perfect. To describe something as devotional is the highest compliment that you can, that you can pay it, because it's, it's getting you to do what it is that you're supposed to be doing in the first place, not, he, not understanding, but yeah. praising, I like adoring. that. Take that, all you devotional detractors. <laughs> Dr. Glover said so. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm a I'm genius. Sure, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but and and I do like the fact that you know your philosophy and theology studies, you know, were very traditional. You were you know following the sort of traditional tra- trajectory, uh, and then applying that to understanding poetry. So in no way am I belittling. Of course, I spend all day no. doing academic work, but um, but I, I I do love the that quote. I'm going to have to get that from you. Absolutely. One of the things about uh, about this transformation and this devotion is that you you know the one part of your your title of your article is the poetics of ecstasy and it it's about that parallel uh, between our own speech acts especially poets and transubstantiation that it's mm-hmm. the universe is calling out but also our words and you mm-hmm. seem to suggest that you know when poetry is going well <laughs> right uh, that it itself is a bit like transubstantiation that the words come together and become something altogether more and maybe even different than what we interpret. Is that something that's limited to poets? Or can all of us strive to be sort of transubstantiated poets in our speech? Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, well, so there's... Um, this, I, this is not the only way to think about that question. There is, there is one way of thinking about it. Um, so you can think about sort of ordinary, ordinary language, ordinary discourse function being primarily to, to, to communicate, to exchange information between parties. And uh, language in that context works best when it's most invisible. It mm. works best when it's a sort of seamless, invisible vehicle for transmitting meaning between, between two different parties. But then there's, a, there's another way of thinking about language, and I think this is the, this is the way that, that poets in general tend to think about language. Not, not all of them, but this is, seems to me specifically artistic or literary or poetic way of thinking about language, where language is not simply a medium for transmitting a meaning, but that the, the language itself is somehow central to the transmission of the meaning. Um, again, this is not the sort of thing that has to be limited to poets, but I would say that someone who's thinking about language in those terms is already thinking, is already thinking poetically. Mm-hmm. And w- one, of the, one of the points that Langlois makes, although he doesn't make it explicitly, he's not the only one to have made it either, is that there does seem to be a kind of parallel between the tendency among poets to think about language as something other than just a a sort of pure, transparent mediator of meaning and the nature of the Eucharist. One way of thinking about that is to see that, on the one hand, the Eucharist is a sign. That is to say, there's, there's a signifier, the bread, that points to something other than itself. Right, the body of Christ, among, among other things. Now, ordinarily, the sign is going to be different from the thing that it signifies. You know, so if I use the word dog, for instance, no one's going to imagine that the word 
dog is itself a dog. The idea of using a sign is that you use a sign to refer to something other than the sign. But the Eucharist is different, isn't it? Because if the Eucharist is a sign, it's a sign that renders really present, it makes really present the thing that it signifies, because Catholics believe that the Eucharist doesn't simply symbolize the body of Christ, but it really is the body of Christ, so that the sign and the thing signified come together in a mysterious way in the Eucharist. That, it seems to me, is one way of thinking about what it is that poets or people who are trying to use language poetically are interested in, not simply using words to communicate ideas, but to make the reality present in and through the language. Um, One of my favorite Chilean poets, a compatriot of Langlois, a fellow named Vicente Uirobra, he has a poem called Rosa Rose, and he says, talking to his fellow poets, he says, poets, stop talking about roses in your poetry. Make Mm. them bloom with your language. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) great. What a line. Yeah, no, the idea being that that the point of poetic language is not simply to communicate an idea about a rose or whatever topic happens to be, but to bring that idea to presence for the writer. And you can think about this in, in, in any, any good book you've ever read. It's not simply the transmission of information. It's making real and present to you the emotions of the characters, the ideas that the poet is trying to express. And one way of making sense of that aspiration among poets to see to see it as an attempt to 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 think of language in Eucharistic terms. That language is at its best, at its most poetic, when it's most Eucharistic. Wow. When the when the difference between sign and signifier, between the the the, the, the meaning bearer and the meaning itself are collapsed as close to zero as possible. So in that sense, you know um, language, at least at, at these sort of levels of peak intensity, uniquely probably in poetic language, but not perhaps limited to poetic language, is always trying to be Eucharistic. It's always trying to be Eucharist. Mm. This is amazing. How you say, mm. how you speak. So where can we find out more about Langlois and some of the other poets that you've been talking about with us today? So we can include this in the show notes with the podcast. Of course, yeah. Um, so, unfortunately, the material available on Langlois in English, as far as I'm aware, is limited to the article that I published in Logos. Yeah. Mm. Uh, as far as I know, there's not nothing else in English has been written about him. And that's it's possible that that's changed in a couple of years since this article came out. But if you um, if you speak Spanish. His books are relatively widely available. Um, he, his uh, sort of occasional writings, articles, and so on can be can be found. Some of them, at least, on Google. Some of his better known books, like the Book of the Passion, for instance, and his anthology of poetry, is available on Google Books, and those are also available at fine booksellers everywhere. They're going to be in Spanish, of course. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for joining us for another great episode of Deep Down Things, a partnership between Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. I'm Dave Devil with Liz Kelly, and we hope that you'll visit our website, patreon.com backslash deepdownthings to become a patron of the show and continue the conversation.
ever read something about the Catholic faith or a topic by a great writer or theologian or philosopher, and you wish that you could personally ask them about something they'd said or how they got to their conclusion? We experience this at the Logos Journal Daily. And while we have the opportunity to learn more from that person, it's not a conversation that only a few people should be able to have. We think a lot of you would be interested in knowing and learning more. The Logos Journal and our St. Thomas Catholic Studies friends and supporters need your help to do this. It takes a good deal of effort to get this access and produce a podcast that is meaningful and helpful to you. We hope that you'll go to our podcast website, patreon.com backslash deep down things to become a monthly subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a podcast patron and in return get access to some really great bonus content like online access to the journal articles we discuss and additional spiritual reflections and bonus episodes offered by Father Byron Hagen and Father Bryce Evans, great friends of Logos and priests in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. And if you're a patron to the podcast, one, you get the ability to comment on the podcast, and two, you can interact directly with us, our guests, and other podcast contributors. Definitely check it out to receive access to some of the best Catholic intellects currently thinking about deep down things. That's www.patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's one word, no spaces, deep down things.